right, we are going to um, continue our study here in the Creed, considering the core doctrines of the Christian faith and organizing our thoughts by means of the Apostles' Creed. So uh, we're going to begin, as we've begun these first two weeks, by reciting the Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Today we'll consider the doctrine of creation. That little phrase, the maker or creator of heaven and earth. I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. This is certainly the, uh, one of the most foundational things that we need to say about God is that he is the creator The Apostle Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, went to the city of Athens. It was a secular city, we would say a pagan city. They didn't have any understanding of the God of the Bible. So how would Paul talk to them about the one true God? Well, he talked about creation. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So this is the the, the most important thing Paul wanted to stress when he began to tell these people about the one true God. God doesn't need anything from you. Matter of fact, God has given you everything that you have, including the breath that you breathe. Uh, He laid out a beautiful, grand, majestic picture of God, the creator of heaven and earth. So we've been uh, looking at the succinct statement, of course, in the creed. We've also been looking at some of the succinct statements in the catechisms, uh, specifically the New City Catechism. So uh, 52 questions, it's a pretty concise catechism. Uh, But they devote two questions to the topic of creation. So I'm going to pose the question and allow you to provide the answer here for questions four and five from the New City Catechism. How and why did God create us? What else did God create? God 
Amen. Amen. Great, concise statements, again, about our Creator, God. Well, we're going to uh, divide our time into two sections. We're going to start by talking about the doctrine of creation. What do the Scriptures say? How can we summarize the teaching of creation? And then we'll end looking at the implications of creation. What difference does it make? How does it inform how I live my life? So uh, beginning first here again with the doctrine of creation. Uh, One of the things I want us to notice is that God created everything. Uh, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, It's saying that he created not only our planet, the earth, but that he created the universe surrounding our planet. And that's uh, a pretty big universe, right? As big as the earth is, it's only one of the smallest of the eight planets that circle the sun. And our particular solar system is only one of billions in our galaxy, So we need to let our minds drift a little bit to think about the the scope of God's creation. So God created land and sea and stars and planets and whales and vultures and lions and hippos and humans. Everyone and everything owes their existence to God. Uh, Nehemiah reflected on this in his great prayer You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts. In other words, the heaven with all of its inhabitants. Probably speaking not only of the birds of the sky, but also of uh, the spiritual realm of angels, right? You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. So Nehemiah not only reflects on the scope and of, God, of God's creative work, but also on a proper response, right, of, of humility and, and praise and, and honor that is due to this great creator God. Our lives are derived. Only God is self-existent, dependent on nothing, right? We need air to breathe. We need food to to, uh, sustain us. God does not need anything. Uh, When a person fashions something, it reflects their intellect and their capacities, right? So we actually have a new work here that we just... Picked up. This is by Daniel Cariola. Uh, it's entitled Encounter. The original is in the little village of Magdala on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the original picture is large, 10, 12 feet long. It kind of draws you into the scene. Uh, you can look at it in more detail later, but you're seeing kind of the uh, A low-level view of a busy street. You know, all of these sandaled feet on the rough cobblestone. And you see a single hand reaching across 
uh, the hand of the hemorrhaging woman, the woman with the issue of blood. And she reaches with the, the reach of faith to touch Jesus' garment. And she is healed. Right? Uh, it's a beautiful piece. I mean, it is, a, it is a beautiful piece. And we could kind of stand and wonder. I mean, it tells us something about uh, Daniel Cariola's skill, obviously, right? To wield a brush. <laughs> Uh, the amazing perspective, you know, who would have thought to just look at the lower half and kind of the, the grime of the street level here. Uh, so there's this creative component that, that really strikes us. The, the, the colors uh, uh, kind of muted. It's, it's sort of dusty. Uh, how he captured all of that is amazing. The unique perspective uh, there's some reasons. I've heard him talk about why he chose to portray certain things in certain ways. You know, he brings all of that to the painting. And certainly, the same is true of God, only on a much grander, more amazing scale. As we think about the complexity and intricacies and beauty of God's creation, we are getting a glimpse into the heart of God. Right? We're learning something about the fact that God exists, and we're learning something about him. Paul reflected on this in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. You can't help but look just at the human body and the complexity of the human body, let alone the rest of the creation and the movement of the, uh, the stars and, 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 and the, the cycle of the earth, uh, the orbits of the earth and the rotations of the earth and the intricacies of the created order, you cannot help but recognize the work of an almighty God. So God created everything. This is certainly our starting point in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we would also note that God created everything out of nothing. This is expressed in the Latin phrase, ex nihilo, out of nothing. In the beginning, God. Before anything existed, God. We're talking about making something. We are using existing materials, right? So Daniel Cariola uh, had some, some, some oils, uh, uh, I don't know what the medium was, what he used, uh, uh, acrylics, oils, but, but he, he had these things that are derived out of the earth, right? Somehow those dyes are captured. Uh, maybe he had a, a wooden uh, palette that he used to mix his paints, I, I don't know, but uh, he, he maybe had some horse hair in the brush. I don't know what brushes are made out of these days for a big-time painter, but uh, he, he used existing materials, some type of canvas fabric backing or wood backing that he painted on. He used existing materials. God created in a very different way. Uh, God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. No one else creates the way God created. Matter of fact, the Hebrew term that's used here for in the beginning God created, that word bara, it's the word used only to describe the activity of God. No one else baras. You might fashion 
You might mold, you might shape, but you do not borrow. Only God creates out of nothing. God simply spoke things into existence. Let there be light. The writer of the Hebrews uh, focuses on this particular aspect of God's creative work. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What you see here did not come out of pre-existing materials. God did not just fashion something. He created it. C.S. Lewis reflected on this as well. This act, creation, as it is for God, the way God creates, must always remain totally inconceivable to man. For we, even our poets and musicians and inventors, never in the ultimate sense make. We only build. We always have materials to build from. I would also just pause here to recognize when we say God created out of nothing, no one pre-existed God or was with God in the beginning. That has certain implications. We can learn a lot about the universe through observation and analysis, but no scientist can tell you about the origin of life because they weren't there. (laughs) We have a Uh, what's called observational science, right? Where we uh, run things through experiments and we do testing and and, uh, no one was there to observe what took place. We only know how life began because God has revealed it to us in his word. This is the account that we have here in the scriptures. So God created everything out of nothing. We would also note here, uh, God created a mature creation, God created a mature creation. In other words, God created Adam and Eve as adults, not as babies. He did not create saplings, but fruit trees that were bearing fruit on the day they were created. God created in such a way that all of humanity's needs were provided for immediately. I believe that God created in six literal days. And that the earth is six to 10,000 years old. But it should not surprise us that the earth has the appearance of age. It had the appearance of age the moment God created it. It was a mature creation. Some have argued that the earth must be millions of years old to explain the existence of fossil fuels. There's a big topic today, right? Fossil fuels. Uh, We're told that uh, coal, particularly as a fossil fuel, is formed when dead plant matter is subjected to heat and pressure over hundreds of millions of years. And part of what science brings to the table here when they understand these things, or the assumption, is that things have always happened the same way throughout human history. We know that's not true. Uh, We know that The world that God created is different in certain ways than the world we inhabit today. Uh, We know that there was a a greenhouse effect, that there was a common temperature throughout the entirety of God's creation. They found uh, woolly mammoths up there in the North Pole that have lush vegetation in their stomachs, and that certainly rings true with the biblical account. 
people lived a lot longer before the flood, like a lot longer. There was a different environment. There was different uh, dynamics happening. We know how carbon decays now in our culture. They can study such things. But who's to say how quickly carbon decayed before the flood? We're talking about a, not, not a closed system in which everything happens the same, but an open system in which there has been change. We know that the entire earth was covered with vegetation and that there was a violent global flood in which animal and plant life were buried and subjected to incredible water pressure of a global flood. So the idea of fossil fuels being formed and, and shaped under pressure uh, can certainly have been accomplished in any number of different ways in God's good providence. But I think it's helpful for us to think that God created a mature creation. Uh, God created everything good. God created everything good. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, Genesis 1, verse 27. God did not simply create a passable creation that would sustain life. He created a creation filled with beauty, pleasure, and abundance. He created a special garden for Adam and Eve to inhabit. In an already perfect world, I'm not sure why there was a need for a special garden, but God created it. He created a variety of fruit trees that were not only nutritious, but were also attractive and tasty. Pleasing to the eyes, pleasing to the taste. Consider all the spices and combinations in God's creation. I'm a fan, I hate to inflate uh, our Chick-fil-A friends, I'm a fan of Chick-fil-A sauce. I really am. I don't even really like mustard, but combined with barbecue, whatever they put in there, it's really good. But all of that flows out of God's creation. Think of all the different spices and the combinations. I don't know what your favorite ethnic cuisines are. But just think about the curry, right, and Indian food, and, 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 and you look at all these different things. All these things are part of God's creation. He could have just given us potatoes. Like, just potatoes. Just enough to sustain life, right? But he gave us so much more in terms of the variety of his creation. Consider the beauty of a sunset, right? It's not just the existence of the sun that heats the earth, but a sunset the beauty, the tranquility, the colors. God created a means for procreation that was not only functional, but pleasurable and powerful in terms of relationship. God created a good and full creation. God created with humanity in mind. God did not simply create raw matter and then allow it to evolve into modern life forms over millions of years. God directly created Adam and Eve. He fashioned Adam out of the dust of the ground and then made Eve from Adam's rib, from his own DNA. A tremendous statement of equality between the sexes. Adam and Eve were created last, and they were created in God's image as the apex or culmination of his creation. 
I believe this is captured not only in the order of creation events, but in the unique structure of the creation account. Many have noted that there appears to be two creation accounts, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. What we have here is actually one creation account from two different vantage points. So Genesis 1 gives a cosmic perspective. Here we have, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, a pronouncement of light, the sun and the stars put into place, the separation of the land from the, from the sea, from the waters below, uh, the separation of the waters above from the waters below, the creation of an atmosphere, right? All of this sort of cosmic perspective is captured in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 2 provides an earthbound vantage point. We, we catch up with the story here, again, looking at it specifically as it relates to what's happening on earth. As God prepares to create Adam and Eve. Uh, this is really captured well in the New Living Translation in Genesis 2-4. I think this is where you see that, that transition happen. Uh, starts off with a summary of Genesis 1. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And then it says, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And it goes on to talk about this from earth perspective. So the heavens and the earth and then the earth and the heavens. Uh, You might think of it like a zoom lens. Genesis 1, the broad picture. Genesis 2, the zoom lens looking specifically from the standpoint of humanity. I love the way uh, David Heim explains this in his... um, book, it's a great little book, Big Beliefs, Small Devotionals Introducing Your Family to Big Truths, thinking about how to talk about doctrine with kids. But he says this, it was as if everything else was prepared just for them, for Adam and Eve. It was like a surprise party where all the preparations are made, all the decorations hung, all the food set out, just in time for the guest of honor to show up. You cannot miss when you read Genesis 1 and 2 that humanity is the focal point, the crescendo of God's creation. So those are some underpinnings of what the Bible teaches in terms of the doctrine of creation. What about the implications? What does it mean for us? What what are the takeaways? Number one, every person is valuable because they bear the image of God. Every person is valuable because they bear the image of God. Of God. Our secular society has attempted to remove God from our cultural consciousness. We don't want to think about God, but this has come at a devastating cost. Confusion and depression are the inevitable result. There's a crisis of identity. People have no idea who they are or why they matter. Without a proper understanding of God as creator, life is robbed of all meaning. We are simply a random collection of cells. Darwinism or evolution goes hand in hand with nihilism, with pessimism, with hopelessness. People are left desperately trying to establish some sense of value or worth. 
But the scriptures indicate that we have been created by God in his image to carry out his work in the world. We are inherently valuable, more so than animals or any other aspect of the creation. This is why we stand against abortion, why we support crisis pregnancy centers, why we encourage foster care and adoption, why we support ministries to those with disabilities, why we speak out against human trafficking. Because every person is inherently valuable, not because of their function or what they can do, but because of who they are, because of who they reflect. Another implication, all will give an account. Creation puts us in our place. God created, he has revealed his moral standards. Creation establishes a certain type of relationship. We are not independent entities. Our lives have been derived. All things are from him and through him and to him. So we ought to respond in praise to our creator. We ought to live humbly. Your money, your possessions, your very life is not your own. It has been loaned to you from God. He is the owner of all things, which is why secular culture wants desperately to evade the doctrine of creation. (laughs) They don't want to give an account to their creator. Number three, creation is a good gift to be enjoyed. Apparently some in the early church tried to present God as oppressive and stingy. Here's Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, here it is, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So God has created uh, for us to enjoy. We ought to enjoy a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset. We ought to relish a good meal, right? With all of those spices prepared just right. We ought to celebrate friendship and enjoy the intimacy of a marriage relationship. The created order can be abused or used for sinful and selfish purposes. So I can just sit on the beach for a whole week, never do anything. It's probably a little bit excessive. I could enjoy the sunset and not do the work that God has called me to do. That, that would be a distortion of my leisure time. I can eat in excess, right? Not just relish that good meal, but eat way too much. And that would be an abuse of God's good gifts. We can pursue sexual gratification in selfish ways, right? 
that twist God's good gifts. But these potential abuses should not keep us from enjoying God's creation with gratitude. Pleasure is God's territory, as C.S. Lewis reminded us. All Satan can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. All Satan can do is twist and taint God's good gifts. Satan actually causes God's pleasures to be less pleasurable, less satisfying by his distortion. But creation is a good gift to be enjoyed. Another implication that the rest of creation matters. We are created in God's image. We are to serve as his representatives in order to steward over his creation. We are given dominion. This is one of the Genesis 1 words. We are given dominion, which has to do with authority and control over the rest of creation. But we are not given authority to exploit God's creation, but to care for it. Adam was to work the ground and to keep it. I think that's a really powerful word there in the text in Genesis 2. To work the ground and to keep it, to preserve it or to watch over it. Adam was given responsibility to name the animals, which again signified his authority over them, his care for them. So we ought to value and understand our role as the guardians of God's creation. We ought not to kill animals simply for sport. We should not litter or pollute God's creation. It's a good thing to recycle, avoid filling landfills unnecessarily. I shouldn't waste my food, right? These are all good ways of responding to God's good gifts, Now, we can certainly differ on how best to care for creation, right? Electric vehicles versus fossil fuel vehicles. Anybody want to talk about that? Seems to be a rather hot topic, you know, right? I mean, the the electric vehicles produce less, you know, bad emissions, but if the electricity for the vehicles is generated by coal-powered plants then what's the, you know, I mean, we can differ about how to understand the best care of God's creation, and many creation care efforts are misguided. In many cases, placing the needs of animals or plants above the needs of humans. So, so there's areas to disagree and to, to discuss and to push back, but we should not be antagonistic or dismissive of conservation efforts. We, of all people, have reason to care for the planet. And unfortunately... Uh, the church does not have a great reputation in this regard. <laughs> I think it's something we need to think about. It's an implication. It's part of our responsibility as humans to be God's representatives, to manage his creation well. Another implication, our bodies matter. We are more than bodies, but we are not less. We are embodied creatures. We're not just a soul trapped in a body. So much of the gender confusion in our culture, revolves around a person's subjective feelings. A woman feels that she is a man, even though every cell in her body indicates that she is a woman. We have completely devalued and discounted the body. 
You and I have been created body and soul. Your body is part of who you are. We have to take care of our bodies. 1 Timothy 4, 8 talks about how bodily exercise has some profit, right? We have a stewardship for our bodies. Number six, creation reflects God's definitive purpose and timeless design. Making always involves purpose. We could look at Cariola's painting here again and recognize that there's certain things that he is wanting to communicate. He has a reason for painting the way he did. And God, in his creation, has created with design and purpose, with intentionality. Even something like pain. Why would God allow for pain in his creation? What is its purpose? What is its role? Wouldn't it be great to have a life without pain? But pain is allowed by God as a warning system. It lets me know that I've stepped on a nail, right? And even our soul pain, when I feel guilty over someone, that's uncomfortable. I don't want to feel that way, but it alerts me to the fact that something's wrong. Pain is purposeful. It's part of God's design. And we can see this in a few key areas, one being gender, First Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul's talking here in First Timothy 2 specifically about the church gathered in worship. He's not just making a general statement that women ought to remain quiet, but he's talking about ordered worship in the church. But what I want you to notice is that he roots the teaching in creation, in creation pattern, that our understandings of gender are not fluid, changing with the times, but are rooted in God's timeless creation design. Certainly we see this in regards to marriage. The religious leaders question Jesus about this very controversial topic of marriage and divorce and remarriage. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So so Jesus steps into this, but he directs their attention back to the timeless design in creation for one man and one woman to constitute a permanent union. This was God's intent. So he's bringing them back to that sort of foundational aspect of God's design. Work and rest. I believe that God created in six literal days. I believe Genesis 1 and 2 are pretty clear in this regard, even including the summary statement. There was evening and there was morning the first day. But beyond the designation in Genesis 1, we have God's statement in Genesis 2 about God resting on the seventh day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He hallowed it. He set it apart. 
God did not rest on the seventh day because he was so worn out. He had had a busy week. God rested on the seventh day to create a pattern for humanity. And this is fleshed out in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, where God institutes the Sabbath principle formally. But it's rooted in creation. It's a creation principle. It's not just for the Jews, but for humanity. God did not create you to function 24-7. He intended for you to have a rhythm of six days of work, one day of rest. And we ignore that to our own peril, right? So creation informs how I think about work and rest rhythms. Creation is meant to point us to the creator. Uh, The danger, of course, is that we can become fixated on the creation, on people, on things, on Chick-fil-A sauce. When those things are merely intended to point us to the creator, right? To the one who gave us, the, the giver of the gift. We don't want to become fixated just on the gift, but on the giver, Finally, earth is our home. God created us to inhabit a physical planet. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were put out of the garden with no access to the tree of life. An angel was stationed to guard the entrance so they could not get back in. Humanity has been trying to get back into the garden ever since, trying to get back to the tree of life, the fountain of youth, right? The final chapters of the Bible describe a renewed earth where once again humanity finds its way back into the garden again once again has access to the tree of life, and God establishes his presence with people. Much like we find in Genesis 1 and 2, with God talking with Adam and Eve in perfect fellowship there in the cool of the day, we find that now again in Revelation 21 and 22 as we consider how the story ends. Heaven is a great place of hope for the believer because it is God's place. It's a place that's free of all the junk that we experience in a broken world. But heaven is not our place. Creation gives us a glimpse of life as God intended it to be. And creation gives us a glimpse of life as it will one day be again. May we recognize the triune God as creator of heaven and earth. The rightful owner of all things king and sovereign. May we come under his authority and take our rightful place as his creatures. I was thinking of that scene as Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and the people were shouting out, Hosanna, waving palm branches, right? And the religious leaders were like, ah, you're going to get us in trouble, Jesus. Tell your disciples to be quiet. And in Luke's gospel, we read, we get Jesus' response. He says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You might be able to get these few people to be quiet, but all of creation is, is oriented to praise its creator. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voices and with us sing, hallelujah.